Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Hey, good morning again. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. So in preparation for um, the first time in years that there have been enough kids on this street to justify doling out candy on the 31st of October, uh, I touched base um, on the street yesterday with some kids and I said, hey, hey, you know, I just need to know, like, should I be should I be planning to dole out candy on October the 31st? And everybody's like, little eyes lit up, and they're like, yes, that'd be so great. And so, yeah, we're going to be doing that. Going to be, I'm not going to make them walk all the way down my, like, crazy long driveway um, through the, what, <laughs> what for little kids would probably feel like the haunted woods. So, you know, I'm just going to set up a station out there at the end of the driveway. Like, I'm not going to do, like, a trunk or treat, just me. Or, you know, Jim will probably be out there with me. So, but here's what it led to yesterday as I was uh, intersecting with a number of kids on my street. Um, I said, hey, um, I um, I do a radio show. And if I were going, and it's, you know, pretty much every kid on my street goes to church of some variety. So they are, they are primed to ask questions that maybe other kids are not asking. So it's not like I was asking like random kids on a random street. Kids on my street, a lot of them go to Christian schools, um, certainly being raised by parents who um, are um, desiring that they would be influenced in positive ways. So anyway, okay, so I tell you all of that because otherwise you're going to say there's no way that a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 17-year-old ask those questions. But they did. And so because I was priming them to ask a question that they thought was really hard to answer and so I said, well, if you could ask God something, you know, let's, let's, um, and they, there were a few like, you know, why did my dog die? Questions like that. Or will my dog be in heaven? Those were definitely questions on the list. But here was the seven-year-old's question that I thought, okay, I'm writing that one down and I'm going to noodle through it. If Jesus defeated death, why do people still die? <laughs> yeah, that is a really good question. If God already has everything planned out and God already knows what's going to happen, why do we pray? <laughs> this is a really good question. Here's the 10-year-old standing next to the 7-year-old. If God knows we're weak and fragile, this was a girl. This, the 7-year-old is a boy. The 10-year-old is a girl. Okay. If God knows we're weak and fragile, and if God loves us, why does he test us? And so that led in that particular moment to a conversation about why she thinks God tests us and what that means and where she heard that and things like that. And why, you know, why do you, why do you think, um, you know, what are you thinking about? And where, where would we get information about that if we wanted to understand it better? Those kinds of things. So, and I told them at the time, hey, we're not, I'm not going to stand out here. We're not going to try to answer all of these questions because these are really, really, really big questions, but I'm writing them down. So I'm just letting you guys know I'm making a list. 
So if your kids have questions, or actually if you have questions and you just want to say they're from a kid, that's okay too. <laughs> like we're all children of God. And sometimes you might think, I have a question that I feel like at this stage of life I should know the answer to, or as a Christian, I should know how to answer this. Would you let me know what those questions are so that I can start a, a list? I want to start a list of real questions, real people, real kids are asking um, so that we can have conversations about those. So uh, you can text me, 877-933-2484. You can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. What questions are you answering? What questions do you have? What questions are your kids asking that, um, you know, and they can be big, hard questions. These are big, hard questions, by the way. So I'm going to, um, so there was a 17-year-old who came out of the house uh, of the seven-year-old <laughs> because I think he was wondering, who is that person out there that my <clears throat> younger brother is talking to? And so then he realized it was me, and he came out, and we chatted. He's a senior in high school. And, um, and I told him what we were doing, and he said, well, um, here's a question I have for you. And he said, and it actually grows out of something that, Miss LaBerge, you always say. And I said, oh, what do I always say? And he says, you always ask us, like, what we're thinking about and then why we're thinking about what we're thinking about and then how we're thinking about what we're thinking about. And he said, I don't even know if I can do that. I said, what do you mean if you can do that? And he said, how, how am I supposed to think about what I'm thinking about? And then how do I think about why I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about? Because is there any other way to think than I'm thinking? Like, can you even do that? And so because this is my wheelhouse, I was thrilled, by the way. And um, it obviously meant that he had been paying attention to an earlier conversation we had had and that I had said something sufficiently mystifying that he was still thinking about it. So we talked about having a spiritual mindset from Second Timothy um, chapter 1, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So what does it mean to have a mind that's actually working the way God intended? We talked about Romans chapter 8, what it means to set the mind on the flesh or to set the mind on the spirit. We talked about Colossians chapter 3, um, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So what does that look like? What does that mean? What does it mean to set our minds on the things of God? Then we talked about cultivating the mind of Christ in everything. And I assigned to him Philippians, the book of Philippians. And in the book of Philippians, I said, go through and underline every time the mind of Christ, Timok, as my husband Jim likes to call it, Every time the mind of Christ, Timok, is referred to in the book of Philippians. Philippians, uh, you know, has, people say it's a book about joy and rejoicing. It's really a book about the mind of Christ. Uh, Philippians 2.5, have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, like set your mind on these things. We talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus promises in John 14 that the Spirit will teach you all things. It's going to bring all the things that Christ has taught us to mind. And then we talked about the renewing of the mind. Um, Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
What does that look like and how does that happen? Well, we have to learn to take every thought captive to Christ, and that's from 2 Corinthians 10.5. So, friend, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? Why are you thinking about that? Does your mind need to be set somewhere else, on something else, on someone else? If your heart is set on something other than Christ, you got to reset your heart. If your mind is set on something other than God and godliness, you got to reset your mind. How are you thinking about the things that are happening today? And are you applying the mind of Christ? Adam Holtz is going to join us next. We are going to talk about after death. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a conversation about after death. It's not just, um, you know, uh, the, the subject of the rest of your life. It's actually the subject of a movie. We're going to talk about the documentary After Death in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, our friend Adam Holtz is here from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. You can find what we're talking about in terms of reviews today, movie reviews, including this conversation about after death. You can find it at PluggedIn.com. Hey, Adam. Good morning, Carmen. What happens when we die? Well, according to this new documentary from Angel Studios, who, of course, brought us The Sound of Freedom as well, uh, there seems to be evidence that we go somewhere. You know, that's the short answer. Um, do you want the longer well, that, answer? Yes, I want the longer <laughs> answer. But but I also think that like right, this is a legit question, and this is yes, it is. Um, it's, it's like this it is, is a this is this is good inquiry into a real question people ask, and yes. so I I appreciate that. Absolutely. Like not a, not every documentary is exploring something that maybe needs to be explored, but this one does. Well, not only is it a real question, I mean. Honestly, it, it connects with the questions that, you know, the kids were asking you. Mm-hmm. This this might be the question. I mean, parallel to why do we die? What happens after we die? Because it's something we're all going to experience. And, you know, at least generally speaking, it's something that none of us have an experiential answer to. But if you have, you know, paid attention to the news since about, oh, 1969 or so, uh, with the invention, uh, you know, of cardiac resuscitation, you know, um, what are they called? Not EKGs. Uh, there's some three-letter yeah. acronym for it. It's, it's a CPR. Like, no, no, not CPR. You know, when they shock you with the paddles. Oh. Um, defibrillation. Uh, I don't know. Defibrillation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's right. That ushered in. Um, this uh that was the thing that really created a context for people to say hey oh. while I, while i was dead um i was having this experience and so um this is a a documentary that explores that from several different directions it looks at it from the perspective of scientists and researchers and those who've been curious about it uh one of those um scientists in particular is a guy named dr michael sabam or Sabum, I'm not sure how you say his last name, um, who was very skeptical. Uh, he came at it from, from that, yeah, I don't think this is really happening. There's got to be a medical explanation. Uh, and then there are a number of other people that come at it from a progressively more spiritual perspective. And they you know, identified a number of things that are common experiences in near-death experiences, which is when somebody is clinically dead, their heart stops, um, you know, they've pulled the plug, they can't resuscitate somebody. 
some of these people are people who have a heart attack. Some of them are people who were in automobile or plane crashes. One person in the documentary, she was kayaking. Her kayak got stuck underwater. She was underwater for half an hour. Uh, and, you know, in all these cases, doctors managed to resuscitate them. Uh, and they talk about floating above their bodies. They talk about many of them having an incredible transcendent experience. Uh, for many of these folks, um, that was an experience they described as meeting God, who they describe as being unbelievably full of light, of love, of unconditional acceptance. Um, and here's where things get a little bit, uh, they kind of want to have it both ways. Several of the people here are coming from a Christian perspective and they talk about meeting Jesus. You know, it's a very Christian understanding of what happens after we die. But not everybody is. And they go to some pains to say, you know, these experiences happen for people across all different cultures and religions, you know, and so there's sort of a nod to a Christian worldview. We die, we may have a transcendent experience where we meet loved ones or God after death. Um, but it also wants to have that sort of universalistic tinge to it. And they also say that they say in the movie, some 23% of people report going to the bad place. They have a hellish experience. Uh, and there are two of those here, including one guy who in the process of essentially being tormented by demons cries out for God and God shows up and rescues him. So, so what do we do with this? Um, you know, the, the, one of the doctors said, I don't know what's happening here, but people are reporting things that they could not have known about like operating rooms, that sort of thing. That was the one mm. skeptical doctor. He's like, there's no way they could have known this. Right. Um, and, you know, I think from a Christian perspective, scripture doesn't offer much clear guidance, but we get, you know, Paul talks about in Romans 12, I was taken up into the third heaven. Some people think maybe that was a near-death experience when he was stoned. It's not clear. I would say this is in the extra biblical experiential category. And so it's curious. I think we can be encouraged by it and maybe even stimulated to a deeper conversation but it's not revealed scripture, right? And so we've got mm -hmm. to approach it with a degree of spiritual caution too. Yeah, I think that we can recommend to people in terms of um, their exploration, Lee Strobel's The Case for Heaven, um, and yep. then Randy, Randy Alcorn's book, Randy Alcorn's um, book. Heaven. Um, yep. If you're not familiar with Randy Alcorn's book, let me, let me commend that to you. It, it is um, a guide to everything that the Bible says about our eternal home. It is the... The Bible's answer to the question, what happens after we die? Um, it's, uh, it, it, you know, and he uh, does this, like, question and answer, I mean, in terms of, like, answering the real questions people really ask and exploring the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to answer those questions. So let me encourage you, if you're considering the documentary After Death as a conversation starter, then to deepen that conversation and to be sure that you get the Bible's answers to the questions, Lee Strobel's The Case for Heaven and Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. Um, hey, let's, um, let's pause. Let's take a very brief break. When we come back, we can um, talk a little bit about Bent Key. I want to know what Bent Key is. Um, and then I want to know, know about Nomance. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. What's a Nomance? Mm -hmm. That's next. Hey, this is Carmen from the Mornings with Carmen show. 
Who's your pastor? This is Pastor Appreciation Month, and so I want you to think about who is your pastor or who are your pastors? Who shepherds your heart? Who gives you wise and faithful counsel? Who comes alongside to encourage you as you walk difficult stretches of the road? Who opens the Word of God to you in ways that actually help you live into the character and ways of God? Who are your pastors? Do they know it? It's possible you have lots of answers to this question, that maybe there is somebody who's preaching or teaching you listen to regularly. They shape your scripture engagement, but they don't know it. I'm encouraging you to tell them. Whoever it is that comes to mind when I say, who is your pastor? I want you to reach out to them this month. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. So encourage those who pastor you. Oh, and if you are a pastor, thank you. Bless you. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Hey, we're talking with our friend Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In, and we encourage you to check out reviews at PluggedIn.com. We have been talking about um, After Death, which is a documentary uh, on the subject of what happens after we die, based on the testimonies of those who have died and been resuscitated, revived. Um, And Adam, you wanted to say one more thing about it before we move on. Yeah, I think for anybody who's considering this, it's rated PG-13 because those two scenes where people talk about, uh, you know, basically descending into hell. I mean, and it's kind of depicted that way. They're pretty spooky scenes. They're in kind of pseudo horror movie territory. And there's one person who goes into graphic description about how he took his life that uh, or tried to take his life uh, that, again, um this might be triggering for people who have wrestled with suicidal ideation. And it's definitely not a movie I would watch with young children. I think it will be more disturbing than helpful for them. Yeah. So that's really, that's um, important to know. Um, Bent key. What yeah. is it? And uh, do you, you know, is it a thumbs up or thumbs down? Well, Bent key is a new initiative from the daily wire, which is, a conservative political outlet that you may know from people like Ben Shapiro and uh, Jamie Boring. Uh, And they wanted to be, um, well, they wanted to create an alternative to Disney plus. And so, uh, and uh, basically they wanted to begin creating content from a conservative perspective, uh, especially for kids. And bent key is their streaming service for uh, for kids, basically, uh, creating kids programming. Uh, probably the biggest program that is getting some traction is one called A Wonderful Day with Mabel McClay, which is sort of in the neighborhood of like uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, there's mm. another one called Chip Chilla, which is kind of like Bluey, only without the gay stuff that Bluey now has. I mean, that's the thing with mainstream media, almost everything aimed at kids that's being created now that agenda to include a pro LGBT uh, perspective, it's in everything. And so this is a very intentional attempt to create a platform for kids and entertainment for kids that does not have that agenda and is really reinforcing traditional conservative values as opposed to attacking them. Traditional values, but not expressly Christian. I think we should, um, you guys note that in your review, and I think it's important, like, that's important to remember as well. This is 
not a Christian organization, I mean, Daily Wire, not a Christian organization, right. not trying to um, express Christian values per se, but um, but traditional values. Right. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Um, and I mean, Ben Shapiro comes from a Jewish family, so he's not coming from a Christian perspective. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, All right. Know. So... Um, what is it? What is a nomance? <laughs> well, it's like a romance with less row. It's a nomance. Uh, it's a it's a word that has been coined for a growing segment of society that is saying that they're not interested in romance movies in general, and especially movies that have a lot of explicit sexual content. Um, and and we're seeing this according to some research uh, in Gen Z, that, that there is an increasing uncomfortability with really explicit stuff. Uh, but it's also corresponding with a trend toward people wanting to stay unattached, wanting to not date, uh, wanting something more in the platonic or asexual arena relationally. Uh, and this study is more focused on their entertainment habits and interests than the reasons for for that uh but i would i would venture a speculation because i'm i'm never one to shy away from speculation that we're just living in an incredibly broken world that is full of risk it's full of horror stories and i think that is making people i wonder if that is making that generation just risk averse right and honestly Venturing into romance is a risky thing. You know, your heart is engaged. And and I just wonder if that generation has grown up with so much bad news across the board and watched divorce and watched heartbreak that they're like, yeah, no, I'm not I'm not gonna risk that. But I think that will have significant implications for our society moving forward if that if that trend holds, or if some point they wake up and say, Yeah, you know it's a scary world out there and I might get hurt, but I also want to experience intimacy in the fullest sense, not just physically, you know, with, a, with somebody that I'm committed to for life. But this is, is this a preference for what's happening in their lives um, and, or content that they consume or both. Correct. It's both. It's mm -hmm. both. Uh, this, there's a study out of, uh, UCLA and their Center for Scholars and Storytellers, which frankly that sounds like a fun place to get a degree. <laughs> right. um, and so they were taught; they were just looking at what they are interested in in terms of the stories that are being told, and they want less sex and actually even less romance, more more platonic friendship-based stories. Uh, and then you know this particular article, which is on the Scripps News Service, goes further and, and says you know they're they're also not not as interested in romance in their real life. And you know, some of that, I think, is just maybe a product of youth as well, right? I mean, we're, we've got kids growing up in a world with vast potential for experience. And so I think that we're seeing maybe a, a hesitancy to commit too soon, lest, you know, you miss out on some big experience. You know, your friends go to Bora Bora, but you can't go because you just got married. I don't know. That's a ridiculous example, but you know, it illustrates my point. 
Hey, Adam, um, uh, you know, thank you so much. We got we've got like a minute. Can we do true crime drama and the Christian in a minute? Yep, I can. So true, true crime drama has taken off. Uh, you know, we've had it on shows like Law and Order and CSI. And now we've got a zillion podcasts. Right. And there's an article in Christianity Today that basically asks the question, what is the cost of exposing ourselves to so many horrific stories? And it's a, it's a pretty cautionary article and basically saying, you know, we may actually have psychological and spiritual impact from absorbing too many of these stories, not the least of which is it can make us unnecessarily fearful about the world that we live in. As always, man, um, thank you so much. Thank you for what you guys do at Plugged In. Um, you guys can check out all the reviews, not just of the things we've talked about today, but like if you're saying to yourself, hey, my kid's watching something on YouTube, I want to know about that. Um, I want to know about what's out there on streaming services and on the big screen. They've got it all, PluggedIn.com. You're listening to uh, Mornings with Carmen. Next up, I have been looking forward to this conversation with Tara Burton for a long time. Tara is like a legit smarty pants. Um, I don't mind telling you that. I don't mind telling you that she's way smarter than me, um, that I admire her intellect. Um, she also writes in both the nonfiction and the fiction worlds, and she does it simultaneously. So, you know, in the past, we talked about people like they could like write with their left and their right hand at the same time about two different subject matters. I think she's like secretly one of those people. I don't know. I might ask her that. Um, but she has written a book that I um, that I read a couple of months ago, and it's called Self Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. And so I initially thought, let's have her on to talk about that, because this notion that we have moved from being people who understand ourselves as made in the image of God to a culture where everybody thinks they're self-made and we like the the filters and the Instagrams and I mean all of that right like we're really we're not just curating um, uh, a feed we're actually presenting something in those spaces and places where we are making other people believe things about ourselves and sometimes it's totally make believe so the self made notion and sort of like where that comes from from art and literature and history and so I wanted to explore that with her but then she's also with her other hand been writing a novel. And so I want to I want to visit that as well. Um, and so Tara Isabella Burton, Tara Burton is up next. And, and I can hardly wait. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Tara Burton is uh, the author of several novels, Social Creature, Social Creature the World Cannot Give, and uh, the forthcoming novel here in Avalon. She's also the author of several nonfiction books, Strange Rights, my favorite one until I read Self Made, which we're going to talk about today, curating our image from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. She's also working on a history of magic and modernity. Um, we're going to look forward to that as well. Um, she's a super smarty pants. I don't mind telling you that. She's got a doctorate in theology from Oxford. Um, Tara, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So it's lovely to have you. Um, I have listened to you uh, on a number of other um, podcasts and shows. And first of all, I like I like the pace of your speech. Thanks very much. I grew up speaking 
talking much too quickly. So it's uh, it's been an effort to learn to slow down. No, I I just really appreciate it. I, I feel like you're a person who has a lot to share and a lot to get out. And so I I just don't mind telling you that I appreciate that about you. Um, Tara, <laughs> um, because I know you're not working right now on the things that we're teed up to talk about, I just want to ask what you're working on now and like, when do you write? What is your writer's life like? Oh, well, uh, right now I'm in a hotel room in D.C. I just gave a talk at American University. Uh, but more broadly, the uh, writing part of my life, I try to, whenever I'm not traveling for work, uh, set aside about from 2 to 6 p.m. There's a, a local sort of cafe brewery on the waterfront by my house. And I try to leave all of my Internet connected devices to put a blocker on my iPad, which is what I use to write. And I could only really write, especially fiction, with no access to any kind of modern technology or inevitably I will spend my day on Instagram or Twitter. So I have to be yeah, very strict with that. They're like, suck. they're like a mind suck. So, okay. So, um, I love, I love what you are working on and I totally look forward to, um, to what's coming in a couple of years, uh, on the history of magic and modernity. I want to talk uh, today about self-made, which I, I just think is brilliant, but it's also a little smarty pants for people who maybe are not used to reading um, nonfiction where we're talking about history and we're talking about literature and we're talking about art and how we got to where we are. So introduce um, introduce us to the difference in who we were and how we lived together when we understood we were created versus who we have become now that we imagine we are self-made. Absolutely. So the story of self-made, I always say it's a story about theology. It's a story about human culture, at least, you know, from the vantage point of America in 2023, and how we've transitioned from a society where we understood ourselves as created beings, created by God, where all aspects of who we really were, our our sort of social roles, our place in the, the social world, our bodies, were all part of sort of one holistic whole. And as uh, that sort of bit distinctly Christian in, in the West vision has become less and less common, more and more fractured, following the, the Renaissance, following the Enlightenment, following all sorts of historical shifts. We've increasingly come to think that we, in a sense, are our own gods, that we should not only can, but should create ourselves, that what it means to be human is to decide who we want to be. And there's a very positive element of that development. You can look at, for example, uh, the history of the development of human rights, uh, the idea that even if you were born uh, in, in poverty or born a, a peasant, you might, you had the opportunity to, through your own efforts, make something more of your life. But at the same time, we can see a kind of dark side to this narrative. The idea that if you're not kind of deciding who you are and always becoming your best self and shaping yourself for public consumption, you've somehow failed at the project of being human because the project of being human is being equated with this kind of constant, relentless, personal branding and personal shaping. So when we pivot from, and I might, I might toggle back and forth here, when we pivot from self-made, mm -hmm. creating our identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, to Avalon <clears throat> and the Avalon, um, are we 
Are we talking about the same thing? Because I feel like the challenge that Rose and Cecilia face is not unlike what you describe um, in Self-Made. Absolutely. I just, all my fiction, my nonfiction are about the same thing. They're about looking for transcendence and enchantment in a world that, that doesn't seem to offer it. And so here in Avalon, it's the story of these two adult sisters who fall under the spell of a kind of mysterious, immersive theater cabaret troupe that may or may not be a, be a cult, essentially. Uh, what draws these, these two young women in is the sense that there's another world out there where things matter, where things are meaningful, where there's a sense of enchantment and wonder uh, contrasted with the life that, uh, particularly in the case of the, um, of the younger sister, Rose, feels... Uh, alienated you know she's she's working hard in a in a sort of tech job and she's got all the uh she's got the right fiance and the right uh, clothes and the right sweet green salads but something is missing (laughs) and it's only through getting involved with this potentially dangerous potentially exciting mysterious organization that she realizes that there's something in her life that isn't isn't there um, if if somebody were looking for uh, a motif here, is is the Matrix an uh, an analogy? Is Alice in Wonderland an analogy? When we when you're when you're helping people think through, like what are they going to encounter? Would I be suggesting the right motif there if I used those as um, as as other text or other sure. uh, experiences? Okay, um, for here in Avalon. Absolutely. Uh, Alice, a little Alice in Wonderland, uh, a little Goblin Market, the Christina Rossetti poem about two sisters who get involved with some <laughs> mysterious otherworldly creatures. Um, I'm also not sure if you're familiar with the Scottish folktale um, Tam Lynn, uh, in which someone uh, saves her beloved from the fairy realm. Um, but I was really interested in the sort of, uh, and, and the, the motive of fairyland, not as a, as a literal place this is not necessarily a fantasy book but this idea of somewhere that's that's enchanted uh, a little bit morally neutral these are not sort of witches and demons but they're not angels there's some slightly otherworldly beings that take you out of real life and kind of put you in this permanent suspended uh, atmosphere of, of beauty and wonder but at the same time take you away from things that are very real and beautiful and human and the kind of obligations and rootedness that we have in our real lives uh, without giving too much away of the story of Avalon attention is that simultaneously these sisters are drawn to this place that offers a sense of magic and wonder but at the same time they have things that pull them back towards the real world in many cases commitments that may not be exactly what they wanted or the perfect thing in the world but that are real and that is something that I think uh, stories about fairyland, these sort of uh, that use fairyland as a metaphor for that kind of in-between place do really well. And that's what I wanted to explore. So you could call this book a bit of a fairy tale. Yeah, no, you totally could. It's um, it's very, very captivating. Um, and uh, there's a little siren song in there for um, for folks who understand maybe that as a um, as an analogy uh, as well. There's uh, the power of story, uh, and I love that you do this. I love that, first of all, you write brilliantly um, in a in a nonfiction format. You write beautifully um, about 
substantive things that we need to understand about who we are and how we got to be where we are as individuals and um, as people. And then you turn with the other hand, and this is where I sort of described it as you're writing with your left hand and your right hand, um, same subject matter, but in completely different, I mean, it, in completely different ways. Um, you write brilliant, brilliant stories. Can you talk about the power of story to lead us into places and to self-discoveries that we might not be led into as easily through nonfiction? Absolutely. That's a great question. It's what I love. I I always think my my first love is writing fiction. And it's precisely because I think fiction has the capacity. I mean, George Eliot famously said that if art does not enlarge empathy, nothing does. But I I think that's that's part of that's part of it, but it's not the, the totality. I think being asked to pay attention to a particular a character, a moment, a detail sort of helps to shape us and helps to develop this faculty of, of attentive love. And I think there's no there's no story that can get at the whole world, the whole truth of the situation. I think this is always the kind of tragedy of being a fiction writer is that the more you love stories, the more you realize that you can never quite capture reality. But I think that a developing a, an appreciation for the beauty and the imperfection of the human desire to, to try and say, pay attention to this, this, this line of dialogue, this detail about a character, this, this moment, there's a real human effort in saying there is something real and that matters. And with your limited human lifespan, the limited amount of attention you can pay to things in the world, this is worth paying attention to. So I, I think of stories as, as invitations. Um, and in, in a sense, an invitation to a certain kind of commitment. My big concern about technology is, is what it does to our attention spans that, you know, we can write things and delete them so, so easily. We can, you know, flip through an Instagram page and attend to things that aren't really worthy of our attention. And what a, a really good story does is demand a kind of sacrifice of time and of our lives for um, a kind of reverential approach to the human condition. At least that's the best case scenario. That's my, my idealistic thing of what stories should do or can do at their best. When we come back, I'm going to invite uh, Tara to talk a little bit about character development. Um, Laura Stearns is a character in, uh, the, the character, primary character, in um, an earlier novel that Tara wrote called The World Cannot Give. I want to talk a little bit about Laura's character development and how Um, Her story tells the story of the power of a person. Um, But then I also want to talk about the characters in the Avalon and how their stories are really helping us not only see people, individuals, but also people in relationship with one another um, and how we are influenced by the communities or the subcultures in which we live. So all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge, host of Mornings with Carmen. Time together as people of faith is so important, and together we can make a positive impact. So Faith Radio is ready to hit the road. Would your community be a good fit for a Faith Radio live event full of encouragement and togetherness that we can spur each other on toward love and good deeds? Nominate your community for a live Faith Radio event at MyFaithRadio.com, and I hope to get to see you soon. If you've ever been in um, in relationship with an individual, a person who 
really held too much power over you, um, that you really sort of found yourself within their spell, um, then the world cannot give is an important, absolutely important novel by Tara Isabella Burton for you to read. If you have found yourself sort of sucked into a group um, or a subculture, even a cult um, or cultish behavior, uh, then Tara's forthcoming novel um, is uh, is absolutely going to be one that you do not want to miss out on. Um, can you talk about that, Tara? Can you talk about these characters and the um, there's a nuanced difference here in what they are experiencing, um, and it has to do with people, but sometimes individually and then sometimes in community. Absolutely. So The World Cannot Give, which is set in a New England boarding school, uh, follows the teenage Laura Stearns, sort of idealistic, sensitive young girl who gets involved with um, uh, the sort of these, the school's chapel choir singing uh, medieval and Renaissance music, and particularly with its charismatic leader, a kind of zealous uh, teenage Catholic convert named Virginia Strauss. And Laura's uh, kind of confused feelings about about sex, about transcendence, about meaning get wrapped up with uh, Virginia's influence over her, uh, which takes her to some very dark places. Um, I think in some ways uh, here in Avalon, the, the influence is perhaps a little bit less, uh, uh, a little bit more morally neutral. Uh, the, the two sisters, Cecilia and Rose, that get caught up in the Avalon, they are looking for something, and the Avalon does offer them that. Uh, in Cecilia's case, she's the sort of wayward, romantic, bohemian sister. It provides her a sense of structure and order that she needs after a sort of impetuous marriage that has broken down. In Rose's case, uh, the sort of buttoned-up, straight-laced sister, it provides her something, something beautiful, something wondrous in a life that uh, she sort of has designed to be more mature or more adult and to say goodbye to these childhood things. And what I, what I wanted to explore in the Avalon is, is the sort of double movement where simultaneously, of course, in some ways it's better than what they left behind. And yet it can't last forever. And in, in their different ways, both sisters know this, that uh, Cecilia has left a, a husband with unresolved issues behind, uh, a husband that Rose is also uh, in, in searching for her missing sister, uh, develops some, some feelings for that she's wrestling with. And so the question of the, you know, I think in this, my second novel, The World Cannot Give, the characters are so convinced in the way that only teenagers can be that the, the modern world doesn't have anything to offer and they have to retreat into this sort of cultish obsession with, uh, with uh, this 1930s, uh, sorry, with this uh, 20th century novelist and with this, this older music. At the same time, Avalon, I think, it's, it's a story about older people. It's a story about people who have lived in the world a little bit. They're both in, in their 30s. And so the question of, what do we want to reject about this, this seemingly modern world, but also what can we embrace about it? What can we, how do we build a real life in it rather than just a kind of poetic go out in a blaze of glory ending of rejecting it? And I think that in some ways it's um, the, the, the characters deal with the fact that it's not as, it's not as easy or as satisfying than some elements of, you know, a fairy tale might be where, you know, you, you leave the world behind and that's that. Or you have this sort of big ending where uh, everything is wrapped up at the end and I, without giving too much away. 
at the end of, of here in Avalon, both sisters have to figure out how to be in the real world and how to, what to, how to be in the real world, making sense of the, the journey they've been on. So Tara, you and I are talking right now to, I mean, not exclusively, but a largely Christian audience. Most of the people who um, are listening, um, they're, they're trying to think through um, how we got to where we are in the culture today, how Christians um, have lost their influence, or they feel like they have anyway, um, why the church seems to struggle to find her right influence in the culture. Um, and so here's what I want you to argue to them. Literally, everyone's going to read the novels. Like, everyone. They're going to be, I mean, they are New York Times bestsellers. This one is going to be, like, I can like, say that with some confidence and conviction because they're they're fantastic stories. Um, the nonfiction sure. books help Christians be prepared to talk with everybody out there that's going to read the novels. The nonfiction books help me understand what you're talking about. Not so that I can like say, well, here's what it, this is about when you think of it from a nonfiction perspective, but so that I as a Christian can be actually equipped to understand more deeply what I'm reading and what it means. Um, well, I, I certainly, my, my own, I am a Christian and my faith informs both my fiction and my nonfiction. Um, but what I really want to convey to readers, whether they're uh, people of faith or not, is the sense that what we have lost in, in, in the modern world is a sense that there, that things are real, that truth is real, that good and evil are real. I think it's easy for us now, uh, particularly in this fragmented social re- media age to collapse into senses of relativism. You know, what's true for me, what's true for mm. you, that reality is just about perception. And, and, you know, of course there is something about uh, our own experiences shaping our ability to, to understand the world. You know, we all, all of us have a little piece of, of the greater puzzle, but I think that um, a kind of good faith belief that there are things that really matter. There are transcendent, ideals, there is something more than just individual perception and individual pursuit of power. Um, I think if there is a kind of clarion call in my work, it's that it's to recover some of that and to recover that that sense so that we can have a meaningful dialogue, uh, uh, interfaith dialogue, fa- uh, dialogue between people of faith and people who do not profess a faith, but a sense of what are we working for? What is it all for? You know, what what actually matters. And I think that so often, unfortunately, uh, cultural discourse has lost a sense of, a, a sense that things can matter, let alone before we start to get to debating about what those things even are. So maybe a return to moral realism. That's what uh, I'd like both my nonfiction and my fiction to, to encourage, hopefully not too much in a moralistic way. But I think the greatest novels are always the ones that deal with deal with both the complicated nature of being human, that we are, you know, in some ways base and broken and sinful and driven by these petty urges, and that there is a part of us that yearns for something more, can apprehend something more. I mean, from Hamlet onwards, this is exactly what human beings work out. And I think that Fiction is a great place to explore both elements of human life. 
you're just you're you're simply brilliant. Um, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for um, not only what you are writing in the nonfiction space. Um, if you haven't read Strange Rights, uh, that is an excellent one. We've been talking today about self-made, what it looks like to curate our image, but also um, Tara's novels, which I I couldn't more highly recommend. And so we're going to watch for here in Avalon, but you can go ahead and read Social Creature and The World Cannot Give. You've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. We are completely out of time because, you know, that's the way we uh, roll from time to time. So get yourself into the Word of God today before you get out there into the world that God so loves so that we can walk in ways that honor Jesus. Have a great weekend and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.